Hi, this is Mark Lynch with the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. With us now is Aaron Snyder, the Bush School of Texas A&M University. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So one of the things I know you've been working on lately is on uh, efforts by the international community to try and support uh, the Arab transitions Mm -hmm. after 2011 um, with financial assistance, Mm -hmm. and you've been working on political economy issues Mm -hmm. for a long time. So why don't we start by talking about that? Uh, What what did the international community try and do economically to support the Arab transitions, Mm -hmm. and what went wrong? That's a huge question, and I don't know the answer to that, which is uh, a key motivating source for this project. So uh, this stems off of, again, a a really uh, a new project uh, looking at the political economy of transitions assistance uh, in the Middle East and looking at um, how aid has changed um, since 2011 broadly. And it sort of stems from uh, a long interest in uh, the political economy of foreign assistance, uh, particularly uh, the political economy of uh, democracy in the region. So I'm finishing up a book manuscript on on that subject now. Um, And so kind of a lot of the ideas that animated that project are animating uh, the ideas of looking at transitional support. Uh, So, you know, we've seen a lot of really interesting and and contradictory behavior over the last five years. And, you know, I was living in Cairo at the time of the uprisings and, and like everyone in the region at that time was really kind of looking to see um, in the first few months after 2011, what the international response would be to developments that were happening and happening very quickly in the region. Um, And I think, I can't remember the exact date, I think it was in May in 2011, President Obama made a very big speech. Um, You know, and people were kind of, before the speech actually happened, kind of wondering, would there be any sort of grand gestures uh, to, uh, to kind of signal the possibility of a change in direction, reorientation, of, in the case of the United States, a uh, foreign policy towards the region. Uh, and before May 2011, uh, you know, many analysts, many scholars and activists in the region were thinking that perhaps, the United, in the case of the United States, that the U.S. might forgive Egypt's debt mm-hmm. as kind of a grand gesture. You know? and, and now we can kind of debate whether that would have meant anything. But symbolically, you know, it might have, it might have uh, changed things. And, you know, of course, there was precedent before um, when the United States forgave uh, Egypt's debt in 1991. Uh, for its support uh, for for uh, help with the Gulf War, um, but that didn't happen, and so there was also a conference in Deauville as well uh, amongst uh, members of the G8 to kind of signal their support and pledges for transition support in the region uh, as well, uh, and so you know it's been difficult to kind of follow this because as with any sort of international donor conference, uh, you know there's lots of enthusiasm and pledges, but whether those pledges actually come through is something very different. Uh, so uh, some of that, those pledges have come through in the region, um, but you know, in bits and pieces, it hasn't been the kind of robust Marshall Plan-esque uh, move that many people thought uh, would happen. And what it's, what's been interesting is that you know, I've just done a, a bit of preliminary research in, um, in Morocco, in Tunisia, and Egypt, uh, wanting to get a sense of what those discussions were like at the very early stages, so speaking with um, activists, uh, development practitioners, diplomats who've been engaged in these kinds of discussions uh, to see what people were talking about, what was important, what was not important, who was included, who was not included, all of which I think are really important. Um, and also thinking about, I think, in, in kind of the political science literature, what was the kind of similar big precedent Right, and you know, uh, a lot of really wonderful scholars have written some interesting things on transitional assistance 
uh, of course, in Eastern Europe, and kind mm -hmm. of thinking about what happened then, and are there any kind of comparisons that we can use to think about what's happening or what's not happening uh, in the Arab world, too. So, of course, we've seen, uh, you know, uh, enthusiastic uh, push from uh, many states in the Gulf to aid different countries in the region, particularly Egypt. Um, but where that money is going is still, uh, still remains to be seen. And so there's a lot of different issues in mm -hmm. play, right? Because on the one hand, you wanted to see economic assistance mm -hmm. because you wanted these new democracies mm -hmm. to have something to show, sure. to show their people. And then there's another imperative, which is you want to bring about economic reforms mm -hmm. that will be sustainable. Mm -hmm. But of course, those often have negative effects on, on people. And then you're talking about the Gulf. You know, there's also this more simple kind of wanting to, mm. you know, support your friends and sure. hurt your enemies sure. and kind of the, the more naked politics mm -hmm. of it. So how do you walk the line between those three very different types of motivations in providing international mm -hmm. economic assistance? Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's uh, it's uh, easy to see aid as just a, a humanitarian impulse. We just want to help. But as anyone who studies foreign aid knows, aid in general, all aid is political, right? All aid is inherently political. And sort of parsing out kind of um, the the prerogatives and tensions of the donor are, are extraordinarily important. Um, so I'm not sure to your to your to your question. Um, it's something I'm still working on. Um, I think you know you mentioned um, you know the. Uh, kind of hinting at kind of the construction of economic reform programs that have been suggested, right? And so, of course, we know that economic issues were enormously important as kind of one of the drivers of protests in the region, and many scholars are still trying to sort out, myself included, how important and in what ways mm -hmm. um, those uh, played a role. Um, but if we kind of broadly see, you know, the Arab uprisings as kind of re a rejection um, of some of the ways um, that economic reform programs were undertaken in many states in the Arab world, the way that economies in the region were organized by authoritarian regimes, then that seems to kind of implicitly suggest that we need, or citizens in those states might want to discuss a different path. The more, the, the more money might not have helped, right, if it simply reinforces the same exactly. economic policies. Exactly. And so one of the uh, the questions at this conference at, at Princeton now that we're at is thinking about whether I think the Arab world, one of the questions at the conference is, is the Arab world in free fall, fragmentation, or reconfiguration? And I think particularly if you're looking at economic assistance programs, you know, I would argue that we're seeing the reconfiguration. So, you know, are the aid strategies enormously different uh, from that of the pre-2011 era? No, I would say. Um, and I think that the, there are some interesting things that need to be said about that. You know, uh, there are many um, diplomats that I've spoken with that said, you know, look, we're sympathetic to what's been happening in the region. We get that people are upset, had issues with neoliberal economic reforms, for example. Um, but what's the alternative? Um, and wanting kind of a, a really quick solution to the alternative beforehand, right? But to have that, um, that alternative, you have to have, in many ways, you have to have a societal dialogue about that, right? And that's not something that's quick. That's something that takes a lot of time. Well, take something like um, you started off by talking about debt relief. Yeah. And so even there, there's two very different perspectives, sure. right? One would be that that's simply creating moral hazard. And sure. you relieve debt, and you then let people continue, or let regimes continue mm -hmm. with the same bad behavior that rang up the debt in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the second is that these new regimes should not be held hostage to the pathologies of the past. Absolutely. And so it seems to me like a lot of that debt relief question comes down to a fundamental political judgment. Is this really a new regime which should be given a blank slate? Mm -hmm. Or is it 
essentially a continuation. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds like what you're saying is that that was not really resolved either, that fundamental tension. Not at all. And I think it's something that's still very much um, very much there and uh, looking at the political landscape of the region at the moment now, too. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. You can make an argument in the case of Egypt example that, you know, the same core institutional actors have not changed, obviously, right? Um, but there was an interesting group, um, I think called the campaign, the popular campaign to relieve Egypt's debt, who were really making the argument that you just mentioned that, look, this is not, we should not be held responsible uh, for, you know, all the abuses, you know, the debts incurred by the Mubarak regime. Thus, if you wanted to make, um, uh, to show, a, you know, a clear, distinct signal that you're ready to, to transition to something new, then this would be symbolically an important uh, thing do, to do. Do you think that would have helped Egypt's transition if there had been major debt relief right in that you know, I, I, decisive I, moment? Yeah, I talk about this a lot with with colleagues and, and scholars who are interested in similar areas. And I, you know, as with so many different things with the Arab Spring, kind of thinking you know, of the what ifs, right? So many what ifs. Um, Sure. I think you could, I mean, perhaps that might have made a difference. It would have been small. I think it would have, it, you know, had that been articulated very forcefully from um, the Obama, Obama administration, I think that that might have changed at least the, the orientation of things, too. And I think it's one of the things I've been very interested to follow over the last uh, few months, in particular, the uh, gradual releases of emails from the State Department, right, which have been fun very late at night to kind of go through and see, again, it's just another element uh, to p of the puzzle. What were people in the State Department talking about in the first four months uh, when they were talking about aid? Um, so again, we have some interesting um, kind of exchanges uh, between the Secretary of State and members of her staff, uh, members with folks in, in the embassy in Cairo, for example, about what that would look like. And it's, again, we have a lot of um, folks that are sympathetic of wanting to aid the protesters in a meaningful way. But even what I found interesting is that even when they were arguing for something like a Marshall Plan, um, and writing uh, small pieces to the Secretary of State to make the case for such a thing. Um, the actual construction of the programs that they were offering were exactly similar to U.S. programs before 2011. I mean, one, um, uh, one associate of uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, was mentioning uh, that uh, we, the United States should uh, more robustly support qualified industrial zones, QIZ zones, which, you know, were a core part of uh, the U.S.'s tra uh, assistance strategy in Egypt, too. So not a lot of new thinking, but just kind of more money to make those more robust, too, uh, which I think is uh, problematic, again, in thinking about what uh, grievances, what economic grievances were like mm -hmm. um, of many protesters in the region. But it's really this fundamental problem, right, mm -hmm. is that most people look at a place like Egypt mm -hmm. or most of the countries of the region, mm -hmm. and they would say that, the most, the best thing you could do would be to eliminate mm -hmm. subsidy reforms, and that's how you get the the, the finances on sure. any kind of stable, sustainable grounds. Mm -hmm. But of course, those directly hit mm -hmm. the poorest and the, exactly the people who you know were most mm -hmm. uh, you know you know implicated in the revolution, yeah. both mm -hmm. vulnerable mm -hmm. but also mobilized. Sure. And so, you know, you you look at the negotiations over the IMF mm -hmm. package in Egypt and mm -hmm. and some of the the other things and you say, is this a time for conditionality? Is mm -hmm. this a time to simply say, we want to make this government succeed? Or is it a time um, for something which is, you know, this is a moment of change and we want to fundamentally change the state when we have this rare moment of flux? Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you how would you think about that question? Yeah, time so for change or time for support? So I think it's it's a great question and it's it's enormously complicated, which is not me punting on the question certainly at all. But I think so, you know, again, there was there are many people um, within the State Department I think who were talking about 
um, you know, we need to more robustly assist the situation. Some people who are thinking we need to maybe reconsider some aspects of our assistance. But then there's also something looming that gets forgotten quite often, which is the role of Congress in this equation, right? Uh, so early on, there were discussions about uh, having a, I think it was called the Middle East Incentive Fund. Um, and you know, the folks in the State Department and other uh, government officials had enormous problems getting support from members of Congress to fund this program too. So it's not only kind of identifying a problem um, structurally in the region, but also eliciting the support domestically to be able to kind of rally support for that. And of course, this is yeah. coming just a couple of years after the global financial crisis. Um, people are more risk averse about things in the Middle East too, but you know, um, I think but, but that, the, and also yeah. the amounts the U.S. was talking about were sure. were tiny compared Very to what tiny. the Gulf states were throwing around, and so mm -hmm. I think that's also a big part of it. But yeah. you know, but you've heard, and I know you're you're very familiar with mm -hmm. the critique that would come from many of, of especially the left leaning mm -hmm. Arab activists, mm -hmm. which would be to say that more aid from the United States or from the or from Western financial mm -hmm. institutions would actually make things worse, not better, because mm -hmm. neoliberalism is at the heart of the problem, sure. and that. All they want to do mm -hmm. is to, you know, push forward on these reforms, mm -hmm. which are the opposite of what many of the protesters wanted. Absolutely. How, how do you respond to that critique? I mean, are, do you do you agree with them? Are they wrong? No, I'm sympathetic to it completely. Um, and again, it's you know, I think that there's there's definitely a case to be made for, for example, considering what a multilateral, a coordinated multilateral effort might have looked like. Um, but all aid is not the same, right? So we're talking about also the difference between loans and grants, right? And there's a very different uh, uh, power differential that's very distinct between the two. Um, so that's something I think that that's important to consider. Um, you know, it, even in, in the email that I mentioned, one, one, uh, one correspondence between a staff member and the State Department to the Secretary of State, you know, in her message said, you know, we are very careful not to impose American capitalism. Like, we should let people in the region decide for themselves. But then the prescription offered for that was exactly, again, echoing a lot of, again, you know, yeah. more or less neoliberal reforms in the way that the U.S. might have offered beforehand. I used to say to uh, some of my European colleagues mm -hmm. that uh, they would ask how they could help mm -hmm. uh, Tunisia. And I said, well, you could open up your markets to uh, Tunisian goods, and you could open up your borders to Tunisian workers. And they never liked that answer very I'm much. sure they didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is to me, I, I think that, you know, uh, I'm biased, of course, because this is an area that I find fascinating in work, but I think, again, if we, we acknowledge that economic issues were an enormously important part of the uprisings, I think that there is a huge amount of area for scholars to really develop and kind of understand, you know, different modes mm -hmm. of contestation around economic issues. And I think it's surprising to me that not attention has been very, very little in kind of looking at the role of outside actors in this. And we know the Middle East and the Middle East position in the international economy in the world before 2010, and this strikes me as something that, that that's that's quite neglected. So right now, you know, the hope for transitions are mm. pretty much over. You're looking at a place like Egypt. You're so pessimistic. I am. I am. <laughs> but in a place like Egypt, for example, mm. you know, what should the role of the international financial actors and the West be now? Should they be working with uh, mm. a military regime in Egypt mm -hmm. to try and deal with these problems, or should they have now have a hands-off policy? If, 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 it, if it's accurate that supporting transitions was the reason to mm. rethink these things, and now there are no transitions. But there could be still, right? So, you, mean, th so you think that it's I think, worth... You know, I, I, even when presented with evidence that I shouldn't be an optimist, I still tend to lean towards being an optimist in the region. And I think that that's a function of, to be honest, 
you know, the extraordinary people in states throughout the region that are really, really trying and really pushing and advocating for change in enormously oppressive situations mm -hmm. to this day, too. So I think it's still important not to, you know, uh, be dismissive of that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, scholars have written, you know, fantastic pieces recently looking at the, you know, the, seeing the long view of things, right? We're still in, in, in very much the short-term horizons of this, I think. Um, and, you know, it, it's... It's often said it's become a cliche that transitions are messy, revolutions are messy. Yes, we know this. Um, and it's precisely because of that, I think, that we should still continue to focus on this. But um, to your question about aid now, too, I think, um, you know, it's, I think a lot of the international organizations, particularly the IMF and the World Bank, are not as transparent as they could be with discussions that are going on. Uh, this has been also one of the critiques um, of a lot of activists in Egypt about, you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, nature of IMF discussions, whether under the military transitional government or under the Morsi government as well. This is stuff that comes out again in whether State Department emails, um, you know, other things that have, uh, scholars and activists have been reporting as well, too. So the transparency uh, problem, I think, with, with, uh, with those discussions is a problem, and it, you know, it causes a great many people in the region uh, to feel distrust about that, and distrust about the intentions of outside actors. Okay, well, um, I want to thank you, uh, Aaron Snyder, for joining us uh, on the Pull Maps podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.